I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. I've loved you, says the Lord. It's just one little bright light of affirmation in what appears to be a book that shows the darkness of God's judgment and wrath. But this bright light of affirmation gives reason to the, re- to, to the purpose of God's judgment. His judgment is not condemning, but his judgment is disciplining. God is not against Israel. God is for Israel. But where Israel lives in sin, God is most certainly against their sin. And God is calling them to repentance. And how does God call them to repentance, but yet reminding them of his everlasting love? I have loved you Israel, Jacob, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a love that pre-existed them. Pre-existed Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's an electing love from before the foundations of the world. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Esau was Jacob's twin brother. You remember the story, right? They were in their mother's womb. God told their mother, Rebecca that she would have two boys who would be set against each other and the younger would, or the, the older would serve the younger. And these boys would be set against each other where Jacob, what made Jacob more special than Esau? I still can't figure it out, <laughs> Right? Jacob's name means something like trickster or cunning or deceitful even. Why was Jacob more loved than Esau? Simply because God loved him. Jacob was not favored for anything in Jacob as if Jacob could earn God's favor because he did not deserve it. It's very obvious as you read it. You're like, how is this guy more loved than Esau? I cannot figure it out. The reason why he's more loved then Esau is because God set his love on him, and because God set his love on him, he was favored in the Lord. And you know this story of these brothers who were against each other, and it turned into two nations. Jacob became named Israel, which means something like striving with God or wrestling with God. And then Edom, his name was Red. Red means red, became the nation of Edom. What does red stand for? Well, it stands for the fact that Esau traded his birthright, the promises of God, for a pot of red stew that his mom made that he really thought would satisfy him after a day out famished in hunting. So he traded the promises of God for something that would temporarily satisfy him. And from then on, the story of Israel or or Jacob and Edom would be one of strife and struggle against them. Mind you that God still says to Israel in Deuteronomy that Edom is your brother, so you must treat them 
well. And so there's this continual pursuit of God's people, and God's people are called to act in love. Israel is the story of the church. God is, as he gives this affirmation of love for Israel then, he gives the affirmation of love for the church today, even in our dead religion. (laughs) He says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. There's nothing that can separate my love for you. You could use Paul's words, not height nor depth nor any other thing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And he reminds us that his love and favor is covenantal and it will never fade away. And then they ask, well, how have you loved us? That's the question that God gets after affirming his love. How have you loved us? Can you see we're suffering, Lord? Can you see that your glory is not in this place, in the temple? Can you see that we're not living in health, wealth, and prosperity? What have you done for me lately, Lord? I don't care about what you did through Moses and what you did in the promised land and in the wilderness. I don't care about those things. I'm asking, what are you doing for me right now, Lord? If you loved me, this would not be the world we would live in today. Anybody ever thought that? I've thought that before. I've had death come on my doorstep and doubted God's love of me because I've lost loved ones in my lives, in my life. I've been through circumstances and hardships that has caused me to not consider that my suffering was a means of God's love because he disciplines those whom he loves. John Newton says, everything is needful that he sins, nothing is needful that he withholds. You hear that? Everything is needful that he sins that you have. You have all that you need in Christ. If you needed it, he would have given it to you. And if you don't have it, it's because you don't need it. Because God is more after than, God is after more than your survival. God is after your heart. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We're affirmed in God's love. And then there's a confrontation. We see this in verses one through six through the end of chapter four, really, this confrontation of dead religion. Israel struggled to see two things clearly. They had a disagreement with God. God, I don't think you're seeing me accurately. I don't think you really know who I am. I think I'm actually doing the right things rather than Rather than when God confronts them in their sin, rather than repenting, they debate God. God, I don't agree with your vantage point of me, the way you see me. Secondarily, they also didn't agree with God's view of himself. They didn't see God as glorious. They didn't see God's jealous love as one that was for their good. They saw God as far off and distant and delinquent in his promises, and God confronts this view. The first thing is, the way God confronts this view is with a div- their divided love. They, they have a, a love for the world, and they're trying to mingle that with the old religion of Israel. 
Somehow they can keep a love for present day reality in front of them, try to make this world a a paradise, and then also try to hold on to the promises of God. The, The two don't work. You can't be friends with the world and friends with God because you'll end up loving one and hating the other. And what happens is you despise God and you cherish the world. They were giving their hearts to the world. Second thing we see is that there is a corrupted priesthood. See this in Malachi 1.6. A son honors his father as a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priest who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? That question reveals that they don't agree with God. They're not asking for the sake of wanting to walk in repentance. They're saying, God, we've done everything. How have we despised your name? We find through the minor prophets that God is impartial in his justice. And judgment starts in the house of the Lord. And where better to start than with the priests who oversee the house of the Lord? Priests that don't exist for the glory of God. John Piper says, a pastor who has no heart for the glory of God is a failure, no matter how full his church is or wide his ministry. I take that word to heart. We must all as a church take that to heart and pray for our pastors. Pray for our leaders that they would be men who seek the glory of God above their own desire. When I came to Christ, I was reading Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in all things he might be preeminent. For God was pleased that all of his wholeness should dwell in him. And through him, Jesus reconciled to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You know why we call this church Cross Point? That's why we call this church Cross Point, because there is no hope for the restored glory of God without God showing us his glory through his Son. And this is why week in and week out, you get a lot of gospel. You get a lot of gospel. You're going to hear it on repeat in this church and I know that because I know Jeremiah and I know that you still must lift up your pastor and your elders in prayer that they would be men of devotion towards the glory of God and they would live lives of holiness praying for their family praying for their loved ones they would know that their existence and the existence of this church is not about them but about the glory of God, just as it is not about you, but is the glory of God above all things. So this corrupted priesthood were overseeing a sacrificial system that was broken. They were offering second best. They were offering the blind lambs that they wouldn't even give to their governors. They were offering the lame. They were offering lambs or sacrifices stolen by violence. 
And the priests were okay with it. Because, of course, if the best is not yet to come, it's okay to give your second best to God and pursue your best elsewhere. So the third thing we see is an accusation against marital unfaithfulness. Why does God not bless their gifts at the altar? That's the question that they're asking. God, why, why are you not accepting my gifts at the altar? When I, when I give gifts at the altar, Lord, why are you not blessing my life as a result? There's this kind of karma thing that they had going on where they thought if they give, then they deserved blessing. And God says your hearts are still corrupted because your marriage covenant has been broken. And the marriage covenant has been broken in two ways. Number one, they're marrying across religious lines. They're marrying the daughters of foreign gods. This is not about intercultural marriage or interracial marriage. All of those marriages are beautiful and glorifying to the God, demonstrating that God is diverse in his love and representative of him is seen in the beauty of those marriages that are multicolored and beautiful because they represent Christ in a fresh and beautiful way. But when you marry someone who does not confess Jesus as Lord, what happens is you give your heart to that person. You also give your heart to their God. God is saying, may it not be so in my people that their hearts may not be divided. And then they broke the marriage covenant. They would get married as a way of reputation, of forming alliances in their youth. And then they would despise the wife of their youth and they would take another wife, perhaps marrying twice, or they would divorce their wife without cause and marry another woman. Speak these words into a world of divorce. And for that, I offer you both heartbrokenness and empathy. One author says that divorce is like an atomic bomb. It takes out everybody around it. Another pastor says that how am I to preach on divorce when I know so many have gone through it? I preach on it with tears but also a deep conviction that God has set marriage as his covenant that must be unbroken. And so that, friends, as we all live in this world of broken marriages and broken hearts, we are called to get down on our knees and repent wherever we're at, and that our marriages would represent the flourishing of God's love, which is unfading, and a part of the beauty of his covenant. That covenant love, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, he wrote some marriage vows for some friends while he was in prison. They asked him to do his wedding and he couldn't do it because he's in prison. So he wrote marriage vows to his friends and he said in those marriage vows, from now on, listen to this, from now on, it is not your love that sustains the marriage, but the marriage that sustains the love. Why is God showing favor to his people? Because God has tied himself to them he has covenanted with them. He has sworn on his holy name. It will not be so that God will offer his church a certificate of divorce. And for that, we say, thanks be to God. Fourth point, declaring that God is a God of injustice. He is not a God of justice, is what they would say. Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? 2.17, you have wearied the Lord by your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. 
or by asking, where is the God of justice? You know, this is a really valid question. Why do good things happen to bad people, and then why do bad things happen to good people? That's a really good question, assuming that the one asking it is righteous. But the ones that are asking this question are unrighteous. And it's a question that I think is worthy of pondering even now as we have the words before us. Why do the righteous suffer? Why does it appear that the wicked prosper? I have no answer to that except to point you to the cross and say that the suffering that the righteous endure has been first endured by the one that is ultimately righteous on the cross. Why does an infant die of cancer and Hugh Hefner die at the ripe old age of 91, right? Why? The only way I can make sense of that is by looking at the God who entered into our humanity perfectly righteous and suffered in my stead and in my place to show that God's blessing even endures in the midst suffering, and that in the face of injustice, God will have his justice, and he does so through the cross. The next point is that God, uh, these Israelites are robbing God of of the tithe. Their treasury is where their heart is. Verse, chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? Another question. How have we not given you what what you deserve, God? How have we not given you your very best, our very best? He says, in your tithes and contributions, you have cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing, until there is no more need. You know, there's an argument, uh, and it's been an age-old argument in light of the new covenant, is, is, is are we still supposed to follow the Old Testament, the Old Testament commandment of a tithe? Well, this, in, in this case, the tithe may not have represented simply 10%, but like 23%, because all the temple obligations and all the Israelite kind of, kind of quasi-governing obligations that they had And so they weren't bringing the full tithe into the storehouse for the household of God, but they were keeping it to themselves. And so the answer to the question is, is is the tithe still active? Well, there's no absence of the command in the New Testament, but Paul does say in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 that we are to give sacrificially, that we are to give generously, and we are to give with joy. And so my answer to you in that question is that the tithe represents a window of the heart that causes us to ask the question, am I being faithful in generosity to the Lord? Or does where I give my money show where my heart belongs? Because money represents two things. Number one, if we have money, then we don't need to delay gratification, (laughs) right? If we have money, we can immediately be gratified because money buys us a lot of fun, doesn't it? Like, there's a lot we can do with money. So we can immediately use it for our own self-centered motivations. The second thing is, is that money provides a mean for security. 
If the best is not to come in Christ when he returns and we're brought home to glory, then why not save up and make the best of this life until we turn 95, as every financial advisor would tell you, what you need to begin planning for. But yet, if we trust in Christ, then we realize that delayed gratification helps us fall more in love with the promises of God, knowing that we might not be satisfied now, but we'll be satisfied in Christ for all eternity. And then secondarily, is that he has my future secured. Why do I have to always think about my future in terms of storing up money in my, tra- my storehouse, but yet use these things that God has given me to not build up my treasures here on earth, but treasures in heaven, where we know moth and rust do not, do not destroy, nor thieves break in and steal. So the best place to invest your tithe, your money, is in the one who is worthy, and knowing that he that he will have glory in even our temporal resources. And then the, uh, the last point is the vanity of service to the Lord. I think we're seeing this widespread in the church today. It says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Why do we even serve God? That's the, they're asking, why, why do we even serve God today? We're, we're living in a world where like, there's two categories. There's unchurched, those who have never been churched, and there's de-churched. Like, the category of de-churched is growing beyond the unchurched in the world today because so many are saying, why am I still doing this? And I'm not saying there's no fault in the church because Lord knows that, how, that his judgment must come in the household of faith, faith first and we must walk in repentance. But some people are just getting sick of the repetition of going to church on Sundays and worshiping God. It means nothing to them. They feel it is vanity rather than that repetition causing us to worship God by these patterns and disciplines that are established in our life. They loathe them and they so they say, "No more of God. I'm going to do my own thing." I'm praying for uh, that national repentance here. I remember it happened in my own household when I was a kid. I was probably around the age of eight years old, and I remember very clearly my dad on his guitar on a Sunday morning, and my mom's walking around frustrated as she's trying to get us ready for church, and she looks at my dad, she says, are you going to church today? And dad says, not today. And I heard dad say that, I said, dad, can I stay home with you? And then we all stayed home with dad that day, and from that day forward, we didn't go back to church until I was an adult. And I didn't have faith until I went back to church and later realized that what makes me a Christian is not going to church or having, uh, or, or having a family that is a part of the church, but the worship of the Lord that is saturated by the glory of Jesus. And so our service is not in vain. Maybe even today, I don't know if you know the Lord today. I don't know your stories. I see your faces and I know that there's a vibrancy of faith here, but I know that some God might be calling to faith for the first time, or calling you back to him. And I would say that the best service that you have to offer 
is to the Lord because you work heartily not for man, but for Yahweh. For I, the Lord, do not change, chapter 3, verse 6 and 7. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. That's good news. My love has not changed. Like, Like their disobedience has not changed the heart of love for God. And it's also not changed his justice because he will discipline them. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and how will I, how, and, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? You see, God of the Old Testament is not any different from the God of the New Testament. If you need a quick reminder, just read a couple chapters of Revelation. You'll find that the New Covenant is absolutely unified with the Old. And the new covenant shows us that the fulfillment is not found in the old, but only pointed to, and pointed to the never-changing love of God in the cross, by which we see God's justice as well. Because at the cross of Christ, we see that God is fully loving, and God is completely just. And the only way that we know God's love is if we find refuge in the cross. And if we find refuge in the cross, we know that we won't find judgment through the cross. Because the cross is the plumb line that Amos talked about. It is the dividing line of human history by which God judges those outside of the cross and then he loves those who are under the cross. We know that the cross is the storm of God's judgment and the only way to find refuge in the storm is from that cross in the middle of it. And through this, friends, we return. But we have a question to ask. It's the question James asked us earlier. Are you willing to confess your sin? Instead of arguing with God about your sinfulness, are you willing to confess it? We all have our scribbles, our erasers out in life trying to to write over things and and do things that would make ourselves look more appealing to God. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you see your utter bankruptcy without God. And now this announcement comes. The announcement is, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before this great and awesome day of the Lord the, the, the day, let me read that over again. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's the final word of Malachi. And then we see as we took turn over from Malachi into the Gospel of Luke, we see that this 400-year gap of silence, Malachi's prophetic message was the beginning of 400 years of silence, 400 years of utter darkness, of God not giving revelation of himself to the people. But how would now God give revelation to himself of people? He'd send another messenger, 
Zechariah as a priest in the temple. An angel appears to Zechariah and tells him that he will have a son in his old age. He disbelieves him for a moment. Now he can't speak, but yet he still has this vision in his heart. Luke 1, 13 through 17, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, children to father. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. You know, John's message would be that of Malachi's, which was returned to the Lord. Ultimately, Malachi doesn't just give John the Baptist as a prophecy, but he prophesies the coming of Christ. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the day, days of old as in the former days. So Jesus is coming as a refiner's fire, bringing purity to his people. That fire burns off all the alloy. That alloy is scooped out and discarded, representing God's judgment. The fuller soap is the soap that is used to, to cleanse or purify wool. It's a brutal process in which the person who is cleaning this wool has got everything in on it, and the wool is being purified. That, that's the, the picture that we have of the refining work of Jesus Christ, the disciplining work of Jesus Christ. It is saving work. It is work that calls us home today. He says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against their, those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, against the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. Do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not yet seen him, you love him. Though you, not now, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If you believe the promises of God are yet to come, 
and you will give your very best right now. There's an author that I really like. He has a three-step mantra. He says, I am an idiot. My future is incredibly bright, and anybody can get in on this. Because the message here for today is that. Can we say those three things? Let's just say them together. Number one, I am an idiot. Let's say that together. I am an idiot. Number two, my future is incredibly bright. Say it. My future is incredibly bright. And anybody can get in on this. Anybody can get in on this. Because it's not about you. It's about him. So let's return to him. Father, we thank you. We return to you who died for us. So that that refining fire would not condemn us, but purify us. And we ask God that right now, in the name of Jesus, we are sanctified. Washed with the water of your word. Made clean in your sight. And that we... Confess our sin because we know you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness through your blood shed on the cross. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.